So if you're tempted to think those people who got to see Jesus walking about and doing miracles had a better proof than I do, that's not true. Peter's saying, I have my experience. I was up on the mountain, and Scripture is what you should be clinging to, and Scripture is more certain and more sure. Why? Because our experiences can deceive us. Our, we can misremember things. We can doubt what happens. I mean, even this morning, I was, I was um, talking to somebody, and there was some conflict that arose because we both are misremembering. Well, one of us is just misremembering what was said a week ago. You know, And Peter is saying to them, to avoid relying on experience. He's saying, I'm the guy who's got the highest experience you can have, and I'm telling you, trust in Scripture. Hold to what Scripture says. Um, so we have not the partial but the full revelation of Scripture, and we are accountable for that. Okay, questions or thoughts on that? That was sort of the last point I wanted to make um, that didn't have time for this morning. Any thoughts with that? Yes, sir. Oh, microphone. So related to that, to much is given, to much will be expected, and then you take the word, mm. and then somebody that teaches, any, any comments on the degree of uh, <laughs> accountability? Well, James says, my brothers, not many of you should desire to be teachers for knowing that we who teach will suffer a stricter judgment. So, oh, absolutely. Out of anyone in this room, I'm going to get the most scrutiny. But no, but think about the privilege we have. I mean... For the overwhelming majority of human history, at least up until the 16th century, you, unless you were very rich, you didn't have a copy of the Torah, the Bible, the Scripture. It wasn't a printing press. So your ability to, uh, to have God's Word was to have it read to you. That's why so many of the Psalms are in acrostic fashion to help memorization. And so you had to commit it to memory. Uh, maybe you'd write out on some scraps. So church history is littered with people who had like a copy of a couple pages of Luke or something. And this is all they've got. I, I have more resources on my phone than most churches have had over the history of the world. Too much is given, much will be accountable. You've got access to world-class teaching through podcasts, through the internet, commentaries, Greek helps, Hebrew helps. Too much is given, much will be required. And yet we probably live in a day of the greatest biblical illiteracy. I mean, you read, go back and read Shakespeare. Go back and read classic authors. Not that the culture, the people were Christians, but they knew the Bible. Although that's not entirely fair. One of the reasons that also worked is because there was a uniform translation because everyone used the King Jimmy, and so you could grab half a phrase in a way that you can't nowadays because if I say half a phrase of the ESV, that might not be the way the NIV renders it, so it's not as easy to track those types of things. But, um, yeah, go read Shakespeare and just see how much Bible's in there. Or I'll, I'll do you one up. The, the church in Rome was founded by whom? Which apostle founded the church in Rome? No. Rome says he became. No, no, no. No one. Paul says so in Romans. The church that was founded in Rome was founded by people who returned from Pentecost. And so Paul says, I want to come to you because you don't have this foundation. I mean, he's hoping to visit there in Romans. You can read Romans on his way to Spain, right? And so the church at Rome has no apostolic foundation. Um, and 
Yet, this church filled with first-generation believers, how often does Paul quote the Scripture in the letter to the Romans? Think of what he's assuming of new believers and their knowledge of the Old Testament. (laughs) If that's not convicting, Paul is assuming that in church that doesn't have apostles giving them teaching, giving them a formation, are going to be able to track with his letter and his citations of the Old Testament. When the, over, when the majority of the church are going to be first-generation new Christians. Sure, the Jews who returned from, uh, from uh, Pentecost may know the Old Testament, but we know the church at Rome wasn't just Jews. There was Romans there, Romans. And yet he's assuming that they're going to be able to track with them. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. To whom much is given, much. We, I'm just saying we've got ridiculous spiritual privilege and resources at our hands. Um, you can search into Google and find out what John MacArthur, what R.C. Sproul, what D.A. Carson, what so many other people think of a certain passage, what 23 commentaries say about it. You can listen to 15 sermons on it, and all that's at your fingertips. So, okay. Okay, thoughts, questions, complaints? Yes, Crystal. Hold oh, on, micro- microphone. Can you just go back a little bit to the Pentecostal, I mean, uh, how did they all get there because they spoke all the different languages? I forget. Yeah. How did they? Okay. There are, if you go to, go to Deuteronomy 16. Or maybe it's 18. Hold on. I thought it was 16. Three times a year, right? Where is it? Sixteen, sixteen. Oh, there it is. Okay, boom. Yeah, sixteen, sixteen. I'm still getting used to this new Bible, so I don't know where everything is. No, but I'm. No, I was looking for it where it was in my other Bible. It's supposed to be in the lower left page, and it wasn't in the lower left page. Okay. Um, verse sixteen. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Everyone shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. So every able-bodied male Jew, three times a year, was supposed to go to Jerusalem. And we see this when, when Jesus is dedicated, he goes up for the, at every one of the Passovers, um, in fact, when I meet people today who claim they're trying to keep the Jewish law, my first question to them is, when's the last time you went to Israel? They, they took this literally. We, we can see Joseph's parents doing this, Jesus doing this. I mean, Jesus' parents doing this, um, Jesus himself doing this. And so the Jews who are you know, spread out, you, you might be a, have a business in Rome or in Italy or something, and yet if you were a faithful Jew, you came back in Pentecost, um, the Feast of Boo- not the Feast of Booze, uh, the Feast of Weeks um, was one of the feasts you had to return for. And so if you go to Acts 2, um, chapter 2, verse 1.
When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I want to pause and complain that this is a very unhelpful translation. Um, the word glossolalia in Greek simply means language or it can mean the organ of speech, the tongue. Um, there, I don't, there's no valid reason that I can think of why they didn't translate it, speak in other languages. I'll tell you why they didn't do it. The King James used tongue, and when the King James used tongue, it was like you speak your mother tongue. It meant language. Since then, a large charismatic movement has come up, and they don't want to alienate that from their... I, this is my guess. I'm not certain. They're not going to mess with it. The tradition is you translate glossolalia tongue. These passages are so much simpler if you simply swap in language, because that's what it means. Here's the reason why it's unhelpful. Speaking in tongues is a cultic word. I mean, I don't mean cult, like it's a cult, it means religious. It's a religious term. It's cultic. Um, we only use it in religious circles. It's not a normal sounding word. You don't, you don't use it in your normal parlance. This is a normal everyday Greek word. And, and it just means language or your tongue. And so it gives it a spooky connotation. It gives it sort of a, a supernatural connotation when really it's just, and they, uh, they are filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And if you read the next couple of verses, it becomes clear that's exactly what they're doing. They're speaking in other languages. Now they were devout. They were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound a multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. That would be the same word, tongue, except they didn't put tongue there, because it doesn't make much sense. But I wish they'd be consistent. If you're going to translate glossolalia tongue, then do it here too. Sorry, that's, I, don't, I doubt very much ESV translators are listening to this podcast, so I should stop my complaint at this point. Um, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontius, Pontius, Asia, and Figuria, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belong to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We all hear them telling in our own languages. Now they put tongues. Um, I don't know why they do it sometimes and not others. Um, uh, um, The mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and said they're filled with new wine. So um, God gives a supernatural gift through his Holy Spirit, whereby the disciples in the upper room begin speaking and praising God in other languages. Okay. Now I want you to observe something that is often missed. The, the gift of tongues, and I don't know if we have time to do a whole study through this, but I'll, be, I'll just pause, is an attention-getting sign. It's meant to be a sign, like a flashing neon sign that makes people stop and go, what? This is not about bridging language gaps to evangelize. I'll, I'll prove that to you in a minute. This is not about that. So when you hear about people, you know, the gift, pray for the gift of tongues. If you meet somebody in another language, you can talk. That's cool. That's not the purpose of tongues in Scripture. The purpose of tongues in Scripture is the flashing light, stop what you're doing, pay attention. Why do I say that? Because what's going to happen is one man is going to get up and speak in one language, Greek, and 3,000 people are going to get saved because all these people are bilingual. All these people speak Greek because Peter's going to speak in Greek. And through this one man, not through all these people translating for him, one man speaking in Greek, maybe you want to argue it's Hebrew translated to Greek, but he's speaking one language, they hear this message. They can all understand the In other words, 
they can all, they're all able to understand the language Peter preaches his sermon in. They're bilingual, which is because the lingua franca, the language of money in that day, was Greek. And so you, you need to know Greek if you're going to conduct trade, if you want to buy and sell. So Peter gets up, stood up with the 11, with the 11 and lifted his voice and addressed them. And now one guy in one language is going to preach, and we see the result is that um, verse 37, now when they heard this, they're cut to the heart. What did they hear? And said to Peter, they heard Peter, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you, for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. Um, and with many other words, he bore witness, continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation for those who received the word. So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people were added to the church, came to faith in Jesus, through one guy in one language preaching one sermon. What got everyone's attention was the gift of languages. As people heard in their own language, people praising God. So the gift of languages served to draw the crowd. And then once the crowd was drawn, one spirit-filled man got up in one language and preached a message, and 3,000 people came to faith. Okay? Anyway, sorry. Any more questions on that or this message this morning or anything? But uh, I think that often gets mixed, missed. And people somehow assume that fundamentally tongues or languages are to bridge language gaps to preach the gospel. That that may be a valid use. There's not any of that in Scripture. Um, meaning that's not the way Scripture presents it as its purpose. Um, so, anyway. Bob, microphone. I think it's also relevant that the people that were present were the Jews, mm-hmm. because this was a sign for mm-hmm. the Jews. Yep. Okay, we're going there. Cool. First Corinthians 14. Let's go to first. Well, I wasn't sure if you guys wanted to continue on this discussion or what the message was on. I'm happy to do this. This is cool. Scratch the itch. First uh, Corinthians 14 is the only passage I know of that gives a statement, a definitional purpose statement for the gift of languages. Now, in First Corinthians 14, Paul will discuss other things you can do with it. So I'm not saying the only thing tongues are for is a sign, but we only have one statement of what they're for. So I'm going to assume what Paul says tongues are for is their primary purpose. Languages are for this. The gift of languages are for this. And so the other question I want to ask people who are modern, they claim they speak in other languages, um, is uh, do you, can you tell me about how your gift of languages that you claim to have serves this primary function? Because Paul will discuss you could pray in a language or you could speak in church in a language. But even though you can do these things, he never says that's what it's for. And so I want to look at what Paul says the gift of languages is for, because I think it'll be consistent with what we see in Acts 2. So, verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 14. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongue and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, Tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. 
There's a whole bunch of unbelieving Jews in Israel in Jerusalem at the day of Pentecost, and they get a sign that grabs all of these unbelievers' attention. You see how that fits nice and neatly? The gift of languages is a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. So my question to my friends, and I got friends who think they have the gift of languages, and what they primarily use them for is their prayer closet and corporate worship service. And my question to them is, that's cool and all, whatever. Can you tell me about any times your gift of languages has been a sign for unbelievers? Because that's what Paul says they're first and foremost for. I'm cool with the additional stuff. Just tell me you do the primary thing. In my experience, the people I know who purport to have the gift of languages never do the primary thing and only do the secondary and tertiary things. That's problematic. You get what I'm saying? So I'm not saying that makes it so it can't be true. But when Paul says, here's the primary purpose, and that's absent from your use, your claimed usage of this ministry, that raises some questions. Um, what he's quoting here, keep your finger here, is Isaiah 28. So we've got to go over to Isaiah 28 and figure out what's going on there. So let's turn to Isaiah 28. But keep your finger here because we'll be back. Um, Isaiah 28. And it's a prediction of the Babylonian captivity. And what happened is this. God sent a prophet to the people, and the people mocked the prophet. Um. So verse 9 of Isaiah 28. To whom will you teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from milk, those who are taken from the breast. For it is precept upon precept upon precept, line upon line upon line, a little there, a little here, and a little there. Now in Hebrew, this is what's called onomatopoeia. Um, that's in English when you say the be buzzed, words that sound like the thing they are. The buzz, bark. Barking dog, right? That's onomatopoeia. In Hebrew, what this sounds like is blah, 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 blah. And what they're saying is the prophet comes and the people mock him by saying all he's got to say is blah, 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 blah. Right? That's, that's, that's the point. So he's sent a prophet to teach them, and yet for it is precept upon precept upon precept to line upon line upon line, a little here and a little there. Okay. God says, Okay. Therefore, by a people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. Okay, you don't want my prophet who comes and speaks simple, plain prose in your native language. Blah, 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 blah. Fine, tell you what, I'm going to rip you off, put you in a land where everyone around you is going blah, 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 blah. Actually, bar, 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 bar. The word barbarian comes from mocking the, um, is, the is it the Gauls? Who, who the the non-Greeks. Any non-Greek, because the Greeks, who are so sophisticated having Greek, said all they do is walk around going bar, 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 bar. That's what they took of the Germanic tribes and other people. And so the word barbarian is an onomatopoeia mockery of non-Greeks. And so what God's saying to Israel is, okay, okay, my prophet who comes to you speaking Hebrew, your language, that's fine. He's blah, 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 blah. Tell you what, I'm going to put you in the middle of a people who all they do walking around you go blah, 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 blah. For this people of strange lips and with foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, a little here and a little there, and that they may go and fall backwards and be broken and snared and taken. 
So here's, here's the point. What Paul's saying is this. God warned Israel that because they mocked and ridiculed God's word, they would be judged and the judgment would be fitting with the crime and that they would know they were judged when they were surrounded by a strange people who all around them spoke in a language they couldn't understand. And so, you, so here's the logic. God will indicate that he is judging Israel when people speak to them in strange languages around them. Okay, Israel rejects their Messiah, and Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and says, your house is left desolate. The kingdom of God will be taken to the Gentiles, and they're to destroy this building stone upon stone upon stone. And then at Pentecost, what shows up in the middle of Jerusalem, Israel central, what do I hear? But all of this strange talking in other languages, what it's meant to do is remind them, oh, hey, maybe we're being judged. Oh, hey, maybe this is a last-ditch warning to the Jews, and tongues are a sign for unbelievers. It's exactly what Isaiah says. You'll know, you unbelieving Israelites, when you're surrounded by people speaking to other languages, that you've been judged. And every time tongues shows up in the book of Acts, who's present but Jews to hear it and be convicted of it? I'm just saying that's his primary function, which also might suggest, just suggest, why in church history the, the gift of languages and other gifts seem to die off rather quickly. It is our reading in church history, they disappear from the scene by the end of the first century, beginning of the second century. There's even evidence in the book of Hebrews that they're already on the wane. Because if the purpose of language is fundamentally for unbelieving Jews, once the Jews are dispersed in 70 AD, it doesn't have much of a function anymore. Now again, I'm not saying that that proves the modern day people who claim to speak another languages don't. I'm just saying understand that's its central purpose and so that's my question when I talk to folks is, okay, um, how does your gift relate to this central purpose? And I've yet to have somebody give me a credible answer. Again, that doesn't prove they're wrong. It just should be something to think about. Yes, my wife. Don't look so nervous. Isn't it supposed to be an, a language that people actually speak as well? Yeah, back in First Corinthians 14, absolutely. Yes. Well, what my wife's getting onto is this. Um, okay, we'll just talk about tongues. Okay, cool. That's fine. That's fine. Um, in about the 1950s, there became a revival. A couple of revivals exploded into speaking in tongues. And, um, and there's been a large movement now. And people who are good folks, otherwise, I mean, we disagree with them on this point. Um, and like every theological point, the, different theologies are open to different dangers. Um, our, our group, our tribe's not likely going to fall prey to the health, wealth, gospel. Um, sadly, a lot of the charismatic groups tend to be very open to it. Doesn't mean all charismatics are, but most prosperity and health and wealth people tend to come out of charismatic circles. That tends to be the area they're open to. But there, there are good folks who believe they're speaking other languages who aren't caught up in that, so I don't want to vilify them. But what happens is, whenever they're requested to subject their use of the gift of languages to verification, every time that's ever taken place, it has come back with nothing. I mean, people who are linguists, who are um, st studied in philology and, and language, recording, studying recordings of, of these things, um, can't find any discernible patterns, aren't lining it up to human languages, um, aren't seeing the, the phonemes and the other pieces of speech that they'd expect to hear. And that's because a problem for the charismatic movement. Well, the charismatic movement goes back a chapter in 1 Corinthians and, and finds the, the way out. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 
If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Must, that must be it. We're speaking in angelic languages. That's why you can't test it to verify, because I'm speaking, you know, angelese. Um, and it's, pos- it's possible, right? Now, understand a couple things then. That also then means that there have got to be millions upon millions of angelic dialects. Because the people that they've tested aren't speaking the same language. Okay. Now, the problem is twofold. My wife's making the point, aren't, isn't the gift of languages limited to earthly human languages? I'm going to argue yes from 1 Corinthians. Um, but first, I've got to deal with the mention of angelic languages in 13.1. Here's how I want to deal with it. I would suggest to you that's hyperbole. Exaggerated overstatement. If it's not hyperbole, you're going to run into the problems in the next sentence. If I speak of the tongue of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have all prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and have not, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Anyone want to try to claim that? Yep, I got all faith and I understand all mysteries. Anybody? It's hyperbole. What he's doing is he's saying is, I don't care how much you know. If you don't have love, you're nothing. I don't care how good of a speaker you are. I don't care if you can speak angelic languages. If you don't have love, you're nothing. It's hyperbole. It's intentional overstatement to make your point. And I don't think anyone wants to, I think everyone's going to grant verse two is hyperbole. All knowledge, all faith, all mysteries. Since it follows the exact same pattern as verse 1, I'm going to suggest verse 1 is hyperbole as well. I think additionally, in chapter 14, he limits the discussion to human languages. Let me show you. Um, so in 14, 1 Corinthians 14, the Apostle Paul gives an extended contrast between the gift of languages and prophecy. Because we know there are factions in the church at Corinth. And so what Paul frequently finds himself in to say is, yes, 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 but. And then to the other group, yes, 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 but. And so he starts out, um, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. And as I read through this, I'm going to try to translate in the word language instead of tongue where I can, okay? For one who speaks in a language speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him. And he utters mysteries in the spirit. Pause. This would seem, and, and, and some people have suggested, see, this is profound. You know, let me change the way I just read that sentence. One who speaks in an unknown language speaks not to men, but to God. No one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Okay, maybe, maybe. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I don't think he's saying it like that. I think he's simply saying that this serves no use to edify the body, and we don't know what you're saying. Mysteries could simply be translated what is unknown. We don't know what you're saying. The reason why I don't think he's just established a really profound speaking to God is a few verses later he'll say you're speaking to the air. And I don't want to make speak it to the air, win the day, but they need to balance each other out. So he can refer to it on the one hand as talking to God, and yet, verse 4, the one who speaks in a language builds up himself, which in the context is not a good thing, building yourself. You're supposed to build up the body but he who speaks, um, prophesies, builds up the church. And I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in languages, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. 
Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in languages, how will I benefit you? Unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching, even if lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? This is one of the reasons we believe in orderly worship. Because if you can't hear what's being said, if you can't say amen, if the trumpet sounds an uncertain sound, the point is when we gather together, we're supposed to function as one. We sing as one corporately. We, we listen to the word. We pray as one. And so confusion and distraction in that context disrupts our unity and is bad. Um, if the bugle gives an instinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue, like actually there he means the organ of speech, you utter speech that is not intelligible. How will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. Which is the very thing he just said back in verse 3, was speaking to God. So let those two balance each other out. Paul can refer to someone in the corporate assembly speaking in another language supernaturally as talking to God and speaking to the air. Just balance those two things out. Okay. Um, now look at this. <clears throat> So, um, verse 13, Therefore, the one who speaks in a language should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a language, a known language, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Now here Paul entertains the possibility, quite legitimate possibility, that a person who has the genuine gift of languages might pray in them. If you do so, your mind is unfruitful. The Greek is akarpos, barren. I don't think he's holding that up as a good thing. Because he says, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit and I'll pray with my mind also. Now, my, my charismatic friends will say what Paul is saying is sometimes I pray in my spirit in another language and sometimes I pray with my mind in English. I want to suggest to you I can do both when I pray in English. Or did Jesus not pray in the spirit? Because Jesus is never recorded to be speaking in unknown languages. And Unless you want to say, well, Jesus only prayed with his mind. He didn't pray with his spirit. You've you got to, I think, submit. You can pray in your spirit when you pray in the language you understand. So you can do both, pray with your spirit and with your mind, when you pray in English or if you know some other language. So, so that's the other question I want to ask my charismatic friends. What benefit, what, to what end, what purpose do you pray and not know what you're praying? I mean, sure, Paul says you could, if you have the real gift, you could do that. It's not wicked. But what's the point? What's the benefit? And then that's when you start to get some really silly answers. Like, well, we pray in, 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 in unknown languages so that Satan won't listen in and hear. If Satan knows any dialect, won't it be angelic? Just, 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 just suggesting. And then that whole picture of you and God in a huddle and like Satan, you got to be quiet. Is an entire picture that's not the sovereign God who, who has the devil on a leash where he says, no, don't, don't do this to Job, and Satan has to ask permission. That's not the picture the Bible paints. Um, so, so that's my other question. Is to what end? What's the purpose that it's serving? What's the benefit that you receive from praying and not knowing what you're praying? And I think the benefit is feeling like you have a little superpower. I think that's the benefit. It's not any functional benefit. It's just the benefit of feeling like, wow, like me and God have this special little thing, which is why I think it tends to be so very, 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 very difficult to talk people out of it once they've been doing that for a while because this is their special thing with God. 
And so I don't push it too hard. I just want to ask questions, get people thinking. I don't want to like take a sledgehammer and smash away. But these are the questions I want to ask. What's the benefit? And, and does the gift of languages that you claim to have ever function as a sign for unbelievers? Ever? Or is it only the edge cases? Because Paul here acknowledges you could pray that way. He doesn't recommend it, but you could, you know? Um, you could certainly you could, but clearly it's not its function. It's not its purpose. It's not what it's mainly for. So let's go a little further, and we'll. And we'll... Yes, sir. Verse eleven. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. Now, Christ has torn the dividing wall. There's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. And yet if you show up and speak in a language I don't understand, you are creating division in the body because now I, I, I don't understand you. And we become foreigners instead of family. Um, so with yourselves, since you're eager to manifest for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Um, so where's the verse I'm actually looking for? Hold on. Um, Oh, barbarian. Nice. Well, I'm sure that's what the Greek actually is. Barbarian. Yeah. Nice. I didn't even know that. Um, hold on. Let's keep going. I'm, I'm trying to um, find the one I'm actually looking for. Oh, no, I'll find it. It's coming. It's coming. Um, so, verse uh, 15. What am I to do? I'll pray with my spirit and I'll pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit and I'll sing praise with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in any position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving? What he's showing is to come in and what's happening is people who genuinely had this gift were sort of showing off. They're showing up at church and they'd speak you know, some other earthly language. And what you're doing is shutting people out. You're creating division in the body that Christ died to unify. Stop it, is what Paul's saying. Um, which, is, which is why whatever, if, if let's assume for a moment that modern, the modern day claimants of the gift of languages are legitimate. I'm not saying they're not. Let's just assume they are for a moment. What shouldn't be taking place is the worship service filled with people all at the same time speaking in languages I don't understand. That's, that's the last thing that should be happening. Like Paul goes on great lengths to explain that. Um, so um, verse 17, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person's not being built up. I thank God that I speak in languages more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a language. And that leads to our citation of, um, of Isaiah. Now, where's the verse I'm actually looking for? Where he says there are doubtless many... There it is, verse 10. 10 is what I want. Look at this. Here's where I think Paul limits the discussion. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. Now, in the actual most immediate context discussing the spiritual gift of languages, I think Paul right there just set the limits on what we're talking about. Known languages with known meanings. The only way, the only other place, the only place where you get the angelic languages is 13, where I think it's clear hyperbole. And what we get in Acts 2 is people hearing the languages they speak. We get a big long list of all the languages present. No mention of angelese or seraphim or whatever. It's, it's all known languages. So aside from one hyperbolic verse in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, every example we get is 
Verse 10, there are doubtless many different languages in the world, none is without meaning. So all that to say um, that in my experience, and my experience is limited, admittedly, those who claim to have the modern-day gift of languages have a version that is completely unverifiable and have a version that doesn't function like it looks here. It's pretty much exclusively a prayer language for their closet where they don't understand what they're saying, it doesn't edify the body, it doesn't build up the body, it doesn't function as a sign for unbelievers. That should be concerning. I have an unverifiable edge case. Because even if 1 Corinthians 13 puts angelic languages on the table, it should be a little odd when that's all anyone ever gets. When Acts 2 makes it clear, everyone there got earthly languages. But everyone I know who claims that the modern day gift of languages has an unverifiable language. That's a little convenient. You should be a little suspicious. And the use of that gift doesn't look anything like this. Um, I'll read, read on one more bit and then pause for any questions you have. Um, pick it up in verse 22. Thus, languages, or the gift of languages, are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. Um, therefore, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in languages and an outsider and unbelievers enters, will they not say that you're out of your minds? And when I see video clips where that's exactly the thing taking place at like a Benny Hinn rally or something, that is the same conclusion I come to. These people are crazy. <laughs> I mean, in a loving sense, but that's just madness. No, and I've seen it. We're just, you know, you got 6,000 people all go. And they're just, it's, it's just the biggest hubbub you've ever heard in your life. That's precisely what Paul says. I mean, so even if those people have the real gift, they're not exercising it properly. Um, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever and outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Okay, and that's the end of Paul's discussion on prophecy and the gift of tongues. So I'll, I'll stop there because I see a hand in the back with Stacy. Jeremy, is it are, are the people that you know who are claiming to have the gift of tongues? Would you uh, would you assume that they are in your experience? Would you say that they're believers? Oh, of sure. Some of them, okay. absolutely. So then, is it a question worth considering? Where is that language coming from then? Sure. No, no, absolutely. Um, two of my dearest friends, two of my dearest friends are, are here um, back in New Hampshire. Um, just spoke to one of them the other day on, on a bike ride. They gave me a call. Um, I, there's two possibilities, right? The one's really bad, demons. I don't think if you're a believer, that can be the case. But I will say this. Um, I know, and people that are involved in um, performance arts know, that there is a very real catharsis that comes with ecstatic speech. I, I talked about earlier in my message about how I used to be in a rock band. When you're writing songs, you sort of make up sounds, you sort of come up with melody lines, it's not really coherent words. And, and um, jazz does scat. I mean, they're, they're just, just people even, when you cry out because you stub your toe, you're not, you're not verbalizing anything. Um, and yet there's a catharsis that comes. If you're taught this, and, and if you're taught how to do this, and you're told this is God the Spirit working, and you experience physically a sense of, of relief and a catharsis and a sense of ah, and you equate that with the Holy Spirit, 
and you do that a couple thousand more times, I, I think that's where you're going to be at. So I'm totally open to the fact that that's all that it is, is people are simply encouraged, taught to, um, to, non, to make non-verbalized sounds, which I used to do when I was trying to write songs in a band. I mean, you can listen to jazz singers, or even I think the singer from Korn does that a bit. He just sort of just makes noises. Um, and, and I know from experience, being as a singer in a band, that there is a sense of relief and release that happens from just doing that. And anyone who's yelled because they've hit their toe knows that too. So I think that might account for that, um, that, that the experience of blessing that comes with it. That'd be my guess. Um, but no, I certainly don't think that this is something that, you know, if you meet somebody and this is where they hold to, they're probably not Christians. No, not at all. Uh, I would, I, I would want to check, check just where, if they've got an Orthodox gospel they're professing. My, my friend, let me put it this way. My friends in, in New Hampshire, Ron and Chris Saints here, are the most faithful evangelists I have ever seen in my life. Everywhere they go, they're telling people about Jesus. They're going on like five or six missions trips a year. These people, you talk about whoever's given much, the much will be account. These people are so faithful with what they know. So inc- I stand in awe of their faithfulness with what they know and what they do. Absolutely in awe of, of how faithful they are with, with what they've been given and what they know. So no, I don't, I don't for a second think that just because this happens, somebody's not a Christian or is demonic. Um, it, it might be in some cases, but I, I, that explanation, at least to me, seems plausible enough that I, I tend to think that's what's going on. Um, other, Al, well, we got all types of questions. Hold on. Oh, well, while you go to Renee, Al, I'll go to Renee. The question, was Jesus crucified on the Passover day? Yes. <gasps> I love that. I just realized that in the last couple of weeks that I thought it was so, but I couldn't historically put it together. That is perfect. Thank you. Well, it bleeds into it, I believe, because they wanted to take him down for the Passover. So it's, it's technically they nail him up to the cross before the beginning of Passover, but there's an overlapping there. So it's not like during the Passover. And it's not just Passover, it's like the high, it's the day of atonement Passover. Um, so it, but it bleeds over. I mean, there's three days that really look like two days, but it's because it, it, it overlaps there. So yes. But, you know, 1 Corinthians 5, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain for us. Al. I was just going to say the, uh, the tongues are always interesting because they, they tend to also run into a lot of other areas that cause problems and eventually take it far enough. You know, you talk about the Pentecostals, the oneness movement that mm-hmm. came out of that, which denies right. the Trinity. Right. And yet... They're huge into tongues. Mm-hmm. Tongues are like the, the sign for them that right. they're authentic and they're, but they deny the Trinity. We right. would call them a cult. Well, um, so, I mean, it, it's, <laughs> it, it's troublesome, very troublesome. Well, no, precisely. That's Paul's, I just said no precisely. Wow, okay. Um, yes, precisely. Because once, this is the exact problem that's going on in Corinth. The, the, the sign that you're really spiritual is that you speak in, in tongues. And that was what Paul is dealing with as he um, deals with the factions. And at the end of 12, do all speak in tongues? Do all prophesy? He's trying to teach them, guys, God gives different gifts to different people. And they've got a tier system of who are the first-class Christians with the first-class gifts and who are the second-class Christians and all the way down. And he's say, look, the body is made up of many parts, many members, many, many gifts, and that's its beauty and that's its strength. If everything were an eye, where would the hearing be? If everything were an ear, where would the sight be? And... 
So he's dealing with this faction, and that's the same thing that's happening nowadays. You're spirit-filled if you've spoken another language. Now, here's the problem. When that becomes the validation and the verification that you're spirit-filled, now, when somebody brings a strange message, but they're speaking in tongues, I guess that must be from God. I mean, after all, they're filled with the Spirit, clearly. And so that's where, no, there are, there are charismatic Catholics, even some charismatic Mormons, and you've got believers saying, well, I guess we're all of one, no, I guess we're all of one faith, because after all, they're speaking in languages too. That's the dangerous open. It doesn't mean everyone, I want to be clear, it doesn't mean everyone who's, who claims that this is going on is doing this, but I'm showing you how that's the danger. And so somebody gets up and denies the Trinity, but man, they can, they can speak in uh, Zeb. Is Zeb here? Zeb, Zeb taught me, you want to sound like you're speaking tongues, you say, I should have bought a Honda, but I bought a Kia. Should have bought a Honda, but I bought a Kia. <laughs> I should have bought a Honda, but I bought a Kia. And um, I just, it was helpful. Um, and, I, no, and I don't try to, try to make fun of them, I'm just saying, you know, it, but that's generally what it'll sound like, something like that. And someone comes out and like, man, they're going off in tongues. You're, you're now going to, you're now going to uh, pay attention to them, and that's going to va- validate and verify what they're saying, rather than the test. The Apostle Paul commends the Thessalonians, the Bereans, as being more noble than those in Thessalonica, precisely because even though Paul showed up and he could work miracles, they listened eagerly and then tested everything he had against Scripture. And the temptation is, and what tends to happen in some charismatic circles is they're not testing what these prophets and people are saying against Scripture because once you're looking for the new and fresh revelation, you're not going to be clinging the temptation. It's not always the case. The danger will be you're, you're, you're not going to want to hear a 2,000-year-old word. What you really want is a fresh word. What you really want to know is... If I could, if you, honestly, if you had your choice between God writing you a text message today... And a 2,000-year-old message, wouldn't you prefer the fresh text message just to you? And that's what's being offered. In, yes, Mom, I, I see that hand. Hold on. Um, that was for Carol. Wouldn't you prefer that? That tends to be the danger. There's a, there's a movement away from biblical authority to the fresh speaking of the Holy Spirit. That's just for us. And, and that, that so makes you feel special. God's got a word just for me that it moves the authority and the anchor away from Scripture. Yes, Carol. Well, just just a comment. I have a question to you, man. Yeah. I'll wait till next week to get to the question. But um, sometimes the charismatics seem to lift up the Corinthians as the perfect example, you know. And I, in, in reading through First Corinthians, I I don't think you could find a church that had more <laughs> problems with with every sort of immorality, every sort of sort of divisiveness, taking each other to court. It goes on and on. And so to yeah. lift them up as the greatest example in the New Testament is probably not yeah. good. To quote a pastor who I would not recommend to you, um, Tony Evans, but I used to listen to Tony Evans driving around in my car in New Hampshire. I, I think he's got some problems, but he certainly can be pithy at times. I remember him on a sermon saying, I just got to preempt that because whenever I quote somebody, I don't want, mm-hmm. if, if, if it's not somebody I'd recommend, I want to make that clear. But he was... He's, he's, uh, speaking to his congregation. He's, he's a black pastor, so he's got a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of flavor the way he talks and swagger. And he's like, everyone wants to walk around being the Christians. Haba, laba, 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 laba. Don't you realize Paul wrote that letter that telling you guys in last place? <laughs> and I did a terrible impersonation of Tony Evans right there. I apologize. And to those of you listening at home, I apologize. But now think about it. Factions. 
You've got people sleeping with prostitutes, married people not sleeping together. You've got people getting drunk at communion. I mean, imagine if this morning at communion we had people like passing out drunk. You've got a whole group of people denying the resurrection. You've got believers who are suing each other in lawsuits. You've got people you taking part in pagan worship services, sharing the cup of demons. You've got all these factions and all this bickering going on. The, the Corinthian church was absolutely filled with problems, and Paul goes through one by one and deals with them. So yes, the Corinthian church is not a model that we want to be like in any way. Um, I take comfort whenever I get stressed, like, man, I wonder if our church has problems. I read Corinthians and I go, okay, <laughs> the Lord, we don't, we don't have people denying the resurrection, haven't seen anyone drunk at communion yet, so I guess we're doing okay. Um, on that note, unless there's a burn, Candy, get real fast. Oh, microphone. I got it. Okay. Hey, Jeremy, do you want to know my question for next week or not? What's your question for next week? Uh, your definition of the gift of prophecy and your expounding on it. The one sentence answer is forthtelling. Frequently in the New Testament and the Bible involves predictive. It doesn't have to. It okay. technically just means to forthtell. So it can just be God telling people you're sinners. No, no predictive element there at all, just telling you, you know, okay. that's prophetic. That's my short, but it's generally spontaneous, not from a text, generally. We can hit it next week. Candy. First Corinthians um, 14, 14, it said, for I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. What is that, my spirit? Is that the Holy Spirit living in Paul? No, no Paul's already spoken about that in First Corinthians. We'll, we'll, I know we're going over, but we'll just end here. Um, great question. Go to First Corinthians 2. He's already given us these categories in the letter. So when he uses the category, let the letter define it. Um, so look at um, verse 11 of chapter 2. Barbarians at the gate. Okay, well, just look at ver So verse 11, for who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? Um, so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. So in verse 11, my spirit is simply my inner spiritual man, my mind, my, my non-material part. Because I was um, thinking of that verse yeah. where when we can't pray because our heart is... For Romans 8, utterances, with utterances yeah. too deep for words, right. what are all languages, all languages comprised of? You can't squeeze it in there. That's the only place to try to squeeze it in. See, it's just the groanings. Then don't call it a language. Call it groanings. I get it. I get it. We groan. That's fair enough. Fine. You know, you yawn. You, you, you're in pain and you just make a noise. Fair enough. It's not a language. Languages are made of words. And whatever this is in Romans 8, which is what you're referencing, is too deep for words. So please tell me about this spiritual language that doesn't use words but does make sound. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Okay, we got a break there. We got a break there. Thank you much, and we will see you all, God willing, next week. Pray for the youth group. And thank you, Doug, for filling in and standing up for David Stringer.